let's turn to Jude chapter 1, where we will be reading the first seven verses again. But before we go into the Word, let us turn to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Your name is great and mighty and worthy of praise. And so we gather together to worship You and to praise Your name, to hear what You have said. And Father, we pray that hearing it, we would comprehend, that You would open our ears so that our understanding would be of Your truth. That our minds would not be locked up in the boxes of empty human philosophies, man-made doctrines and doctrines of demons. Father, we pray instead that Your Spirit would be among us softening our hearts and giving us great joy to be in your presence among your people. Thank you for your provision of this place for us to meet. We pray that it would serve us well in the weeks and months to come. We pray that we would not grow weary of the work We thank you for establishing this new church. We pray that the foundation would be on your son, Jesus. That it would not be on our personalities or on our skills. That it would not be founded on... establishing a new doctrine, but that by the teaching of the apostles, we would be firmly rooted into the one true vine as branches that produce much fruit for your kingdom. Father, as we undergo the difficulty of being pruned and disciplined by you. Father, we ask that our hearts would be soft and that we would not grow bitter at you, that we would not turn aside from your truth in anger to the pleasures of this world. Father, bring new people in, we ask. We pray that our neighbors and our friends, our co-workers and family members, Father, we greatly desire to see all of these people come in and added to our numbers. Lord, 
we commit this work to you. Knowing that if it is of you, you will establish it. But if we are workers building somebody else's house, that it will be in vain. If you do not bless our labor, Father, we know that it is for naught. And yet, we come with confidence, knowing that you are the one who has sent out your word, sent out your people for the establishing of your church, for the strengthening of the saints. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bring an end to the evil of abortion in our nation. Father, the lack of fear for you is appalling, is enough to make me fearful in this nation. And Lord, we pray that you would cause this nation to fear you, to repent, and to turn to you. Father, give us leaders who are faithful and bold, who will not obey man rather than God. Father, we pray for a president who will no longer promote our wickedness around the world, but who will put an end to the funding of abortion. Father, we pray that Planned Parenthood and all of the other abortion providers in this land would be defunded. Father, put them out of business, we pray. May the doctors and office workers, the escorts, and all those who are leasing space to them, Father, let them see the evil, repent of it, and turn away from this bloodshed. Father, let the mothers of little ones who are fearful, who are selfish, who see no way forward to get what they want apart from abortion. Father, we pray that your people would come to them speaking truth in love, calling them to repentance, calling them to turn away from sin, and offering them help and love. Father, we pray that adoption would increase in this nation. We ask that 
it would be easier, not harder, for your people to give of themselves in loving and caring for the weak and the innocent and the helpless. Heavenly Father, we know that you do not miss or forget one drop of innocent blood. We know that it is crying out to you from the ground as Abel's blood. And we cry out to you as well. We cry out for justice to be done in this land. We cry out for mercy on our sins. We ask that our own complicity in this sin of abortion through sexual immorality and pornography and through the silence that all too often we have been happy in. Father, we pray for your forgiveness for all of these things. Now open our hearts to your word, we ask, and give us wisdom as we seek to understand things that are sometimes difficult. Keep us from being lazy, Father. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're looking again at a command at the beginning of the book of Jude this morning. Contend earnestly for the faith. As I said last week, contend earnestly means fight hard. So we're to fight hard for the faith. Last week we looked at what that means for you and me personally. We saw that it means we need to pursue having proper doctrine, true doctrine, right, and holy behavior. Both of those things are necessary for us to fight hard for the faith in our own lives. Fighting hard for proper doctrine requires us to study God's Word. And I hope and pray that last week's sermon gave you an increased desire to study the Bible. And fighting hard for holy behavior means putting your sin to death. And again, it is my hope and prayer that you have given yourself to fighting your sin this week. Fighting sin is hard, isn't it? But what better work could there be? What better work? This week we're going to study what contending earnestly for the faith looks like with others. 
So, it's clear that Jude's command cannot be limited to personal application. He cannot only be talking about making sure that you have right understanding of what God's Word says and that you obey it. And because of that, that means we can't be content to end there. We must see that the command expands our, our, uh, the requirements that are on us beyond just me thinking about myself and what I believe and what I do. It also applies to what the people around you in this room believe and do and what the people in the broader Christian community, the church as a whole, believe and do. And remember, I'm, when, when I say contend earnestly for the faith, the reason I focus on believing and doing, doctrine and action, is because those two things together make up the faith. The faith that we have is a faith that we own in our hearts and in our minds. We give mental and, and, physical, and spiritual assent to it. We agree with it. And then, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that changes our hearts so that our actions also are affected. Right? That is the faith. Now, what those beliefs are and what those actions are is actually the faith. But if you lose either part, you say belief doesn't matter, only what you do, then, you're, then you're, what you do will become bad because that's wrong thought. And, this, and the reverse is also true. What you do doesn't matter and only what you believe matters. Again, What you believe is going to be wrong at that point. What you do is going to be wrong at that point. Both of these things have to come together. What we believe and what we do are never separated from each other. Because what we believe is what our actions flow out of. So what we're going to look at this morning is working uh, the faith out in our interactions with others. Contending earnestly for the faith when we're interacting with others. Just like fighting hard for the faith when we're talking about ourselves doesn't mean like fight club, throwing ourselves down the stairs. This is not what we mean by fighting hard in the context of our own faith, right? Similarly, of course, fighting hard for the faith, contending earnestly for the faith with others doesn't mean that we're going to be getting into fistfights with people, right? I hope this is obvious, but let's, you know, let's just start with the basics. Instead, fighting for the faith means having a care for other people's beliefs and having a care for other people's actions and then interacting with them about it. And if we actually care, then those interactions will look like us fighting. They will look like us pushing hard to see 
truth discovered, to see beliefs changed, to see actions brought into uh, obedience with Christ's commands. You see how this works? It's not like we can tie somebody up and say, now, obey. No, their beliefs have to be changed, right? And then we have to call ourselves, like just we have to call ourselves, we also have to call them to live in accordance with those beliefs. So please stand for the reading of God's word as we, as we read Jude 1 through 7 again. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, While I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness, and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Okay, so what I want to do is I want to start off looking at Christ Church. Here in Cincinnati, this church, us, this small group beginning the work of planting a church. This group, we have to contend earnestly for the faith. Now this can get dicey, right? Because you look around and you're like, wait a minute, are you saying that some of us are creepers? Those who have crept in? Well, yes. Yes, that's, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying that every time the, the church of Jesus Christ is gathered together, there are wheat and tares. And so, just like Last week, it should not have been offensive to you for me to call you to look at yourself and to fight earnestly, to contend earnestly for the faith. Similarly, 
Don't be offended when I say to you that here in this body we're going to need to contend earnestly for the faith. Okay? This is no more offensive for me to say, look around you and ask yourself, am I going to have to contend earnestly for the faith, than it is to look down and say, here I am, am I going to have to contend earnestly for the faith? The answer in all cases is a resounding Yes, I will have to contend earnestly for the faith. Now, I will give you, I will give you this, okay? This does not mean that um, this does this does not mean that uh, that you need to be paranoid about the people around you in this church, right? This does not mean that you need to be paranoid about new people coming in and that we have to go through some sort of super kind of intensive, make sure that they believe everything exactly right before we can really trust them and let them be a part of this church. No. The point that I'm making is simply that If we must contend earnestly within ourselves for the faith, surely we must contend earnestly with our brothers and sisters in Christ for the faith. Okay? Why? Well, first, because there is going to be, and there is, bad doctrine that each of us believes. Not just one of you, or not just a couple of you, not just the bad people, not just the tares even. Okay, But all of us have wrong doctrine, wrong beliefs that need to be corrected. And I hope you see this in yourself, and that, you see it, that you're willing then to see it in other people as well. Otherwise, what need do we have of continuing to study God's word? Why would you bother to come to church and sit under the preaching of God's Word? Why would we have preaching? Why wouldn't we just gather and sing songs? And and really, there are people who have that wrong belief. That we know all things and therefore we don't need the preaching of God's Word anymore. And yet you see what Jude says. (laughs) Even though you know all things, what does he do? He writes you a letter. Why? Well, you know why. It's because it's so that you don't fall into error. It's so that the errors that you already believe are corrected. So we need correction of wrong doctrine. James 5, 19 and 20 says, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth... And one turns him back. Now, let me ask you a question. Is that talking about belief or action? Strays from the truth. Is that talking about belief or action? Belief, right? If any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. You notice how belief turned into action? A sinner is what he's described as immediately, right? 
let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error, again, error is belief, of his way, action. (laughs) The error of his way means, you see, they can't be separated from each other. Belief and action go together. He who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So, why is this verse important? Why do I read this here and now? Well, because it demonstrates to us the necessity of correcting false doctrine. The necessity of seeing false doctrine, seeing the error of people's ways, and then turning them from it. Why? So that their soul will be saved from death and that a multitude of sins will be covered. And so I return to what I said in my introduction where I said that fighting for them faith as we look outside of just ourselves and to the rest of the body, to other people sitting around us in church, and to other people in, in the faith, means having a care for other people's beliefs. Caring. Now, caring flows out of loving, right? If we don't have any love for the people around us, then we don't care what happens to them. If we do love them, then we care what happens to them. If we care what happens to them, then we care whether they have wrong belief or right belief. And the reason we care whether they have wrong belief or right belief is because we don't want their souls to be destroyed and we want a multitude of sins to be covered. This is what what James is writing about. It's also what Jude is writing about. When Jude gives us this list of warnings, these people who were judged by God and that he says were given as a... um, as an example for us, right? The reason Jude bothers to write is because he cares. Because he cares what they believe, even though he knows they already know it. And so I say to you, I know you already know this, but let me say it again, you must love your neighbor. You must love your neighbor. You can't start to obey this command until you love those who are sitting around you. Right? Then you'll begin to care whether they believe the right things or not. But of course, it doesn't end there, does it? Because faith is made up of both belief and action. And so we cannot simply be about correcting bad doctrine, we must also be about confronting bad action. In other words, sin. Right? Recently, I met a man, and as we were talking, the discussion turned to church. And 
In particular, hypocrites in the church. He was talking about how his son complains. His son is 18. He's like, you know, my 18-year-old son says, there's so many hypocrites in church. And this man's response to his son is, don't worry about them. Of course, you know, there's hypocrites, but you just worry about yourself. Don't think about what anybody else. You just worry about yourself. You just think about yourself. You just I just go to church and I I pretend like nobody else is there. It just doesn't no, no no whatever anybody else is doing everything doesn't matter. It's just if I get something that's great. Well, this man is not insane. Okay? This man is a normal man. <laughs> and that's a very tempting way to think about the church. It's a very tempting way to think about attending church. You know, I go, and did I get anything new or not? Well, maybe you did, maybe you didn't. Jude says you already know all things once for all. So how much new are we really looking for? Not a lot. But what Jude is concerned about is what are you doing there? So I began explaining the necessity of confronting people over their sin. Hmm. Suddenly we were in a very deep conversation. Well, you're already in a deep conversation as soon as somebody starts complaining about hypocrites in church. That's a deep conversation. The only question is, have you studied? Do you have any idea how to respond when people start talking this way? Not like there's just one answer you understand. But do you care enough about what they believe to bother trying to enter into their beliefs and correct them? Because I guarantee what they do flows out of what they believe and what they are doing is wrong when what they believe is wrong. So I started talking about the necessity of confronting people and he asked an interesting question. Who should do that? Now, I don't know why he asked that question. We, and our conversation was cut short a couple minutes later by a text message. <laughs> Unfortunately, that happens regularly today. Um, but I can imagine a couple of reasons why he would ask that question. One is, if he didn't want to have to do that himself, right? Okay, does everybody do this, or is it just the church leaders? That would be convenient, wouldn't it? If it was just the church leaders, then, I, then this whole sermon would be a moot point, because I would... Like, all right, well, okay, Paul, you know, you can listen. Nobody else bother listening today. <clears throat> I told him, anybody, anybody, everybody can, should, care. But there's more to it than that. Galatians 6.1 says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, now, trespass, belief or action? Action, right? A very similar verse. 
to what we read in James. But this is Galatians. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. So what am I calling you to today? I'm calling you to be spiritual. And then to do what Galatians says. You who are spiritual, restore such a one. Gently. In a spirit of gentleness. And watching out for yourself so that you don't fall into sin yourself. When when Galatians says, you who are spiritual, this is not a uh, get-out-of-jail-free card for everyone who's not spiritual. (laughs) Right? And yes, I'm well aware that a uh, a certain amount of the weight of this work falls on pastors and elders, those who have been ordained and set aside to leading God's people. But this work does not begin and end there. The work begins and ends in the body at the lowest levels. Otherwise, you could never discipline yourself for holiness. Only your pastor could. Is that true? No, of course it's not true. And similarly, you can discipline one another for holiness. And that is what confronting people over their sin is. It is discipline. When you talk about church discipline, the passage that we look to is what, what chapter? Does anybody know? First, ever, well, the first one that everybody knows. Matthew 18. And so in Matthew 18, it starts out one person. If he doesn't listen, then two or three go. So I was explaining this to the same man, and he was like, well, where, where, does it, where does it end? You know, I mean, seriously, once you, okay, once you get rid of the guy who's committing adultery, <laughs> and everybody knows about it, and that was my first example, he's like, at what point do you stop confronting sin? I mean, what about so-and-so? He gambles a little bit too much. I mean, really? That big a deal? Do we have to deal with it? Well, does it matter? Does it matter whether we are sinning? Yes, it matters. Why does it matter? Well, now all you've done is you've asked the question, what is the purpose behind discipline? Why do we have church discipline? Well, of course, there's a number of reasons why church discipline Happens. We, we see them in various passages. But one of them we just read about in Galatians 6.1, <clears throat> or rather I was uh, referring to the James passage. What does it say? To save his soul from death. This is what's at stake. Life and death hang in the balance 
in the church. If your own spiritual life and death hang in the balance, and you feel that and understand that and know that as I preach and call you, turn away from sin, flee from the death of sin to the life of obedience in Jesus Christ, if you feel that and know that for yourself, surely you understand that the same thing is at stake for those around you. And so when we start with ourselves in this command, contend earnestly for the faith, it's so that we aren't led astray into death ourselves. It's so that our own faith won't be lost. And then, as we look at it this week, we see it's, it expands. It's so that other souls may be saved from death. so that other people may be rescued from the error of their ways, so that other people's multitude of sins may be covered as well, not just our own. But now we see this weird little phrase in our passage... In verse 4, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. You see that marked out for this condemnation. And so, as I say, we contend earnestly for the faith so that others' souls may be saved. You say, but I can't do anything for them. They're set apart for this condemnation. And that's true. Those who creep in are set apart for condemnation. Those who are turning the grace of God into licentiousness. But we don't know who they are versus who they've led astray. Do you know who is who? Well, when you have wrong belief that it says God's grace means licentiousness, you are on the highway to hell. The only question is, are you leading the pack or are you following? Have you been set apart for this condemnation or is there hope for you?
this is not for, for you to know and to judge and to decide, right? What you need to do is to contend earnestly for the faith. So that many will be turned aside from the error of their ways. And yes, some will not be turned aside. And you can't let that convince you that it's not worth contending. What we seek is that those who are led astray, that their souls may be saved by a timely warning. And so we want people to come in. We want people to come into this church, and as they do, inevitably, some will be creepers. And I use that word intentionally because I know what it does is it makes you think of, of someone who looks a certain way, right? You all know what a creeper is. They're nasty, slimy, critterish sort of people. But what is what is the description in our passage about those who crept in? The description is <clears throat> what they do with grace. Now, this is where we really hit the, the meat of the issue, okay? People who make grace mean I can do whatever I want. That's licentiousness, the word that we saw in the passage. Licentiousness means license to do whatever you want, right? People who use grace to allow you to do whatever you want, these are the people who are the creepers. Now, what do those people look like? They look just like you and me. You don't know what they look like. But they're, they're the creepers. If we're all sheep and they're wolves, they're dressed in sheep's clothing. They come dressed all different kinds of ways. They come living the life of homeschool mothers, of academics, of rich people, of poor people. In other words, every manner of person that you can imagine, the people that you have all of the deepest and closest automatic affinities for. Right? Those are the people that are going to be creepers. You can't simply rely on what you feel. You must study. 
You must study. You have to be able to tell whether what they're teaching, what they're saying, what they're advocating in Bible study, not the teacher even, just the person sitting there, right? Whether what they're advocating is grace turned into licentiousness. Are you going to be able to spot the difference between their false doctrine and God's truth? The groups that Jude uses to warn us are who? We've got three groups that are, that are given as examples for us. Who are they? Angels and who else? What? Sodom and Gomorrah. And what do we know about Sodom and Gomorrah? Before they're destroyed, think back earlier. The nicest, richest, most fertile valley, the pleasantest place to live, right? Okay, so it's those people who live there, and angels, and the third group is Israel, the Israelites who God brought out of Egypt, God's chosen people. These are the three groups that are given to us as the warnings of those who were destroyed. And then he says, so do you think you can escape? If you, make this, if you fall into the same sin, if we, if we are unable to distinguish between Sodom and Gomorrah and righteous Lot, all right, if we're unable to distinguish between the Israelites who died and the Israelites who lived, if, if we can't figure out what the difference is, here today, in, in our group of people that we interact with, we're condemned to fall into the same error. And so this only makes contending for the faith harder and increases the importance of us studying to have good doctrine is to be protected. And then to fight for that is to protect others. So think now outside this church to the broader church. Remember I talked about having a care for what other people... Well, we need to have a care, a concern for the health of the greater church body. This doesn't mean that we need to be seeking out errors in outsiders, going around looking for problems. <laughs> I found one, right? No, but in our interactions with others, when we notice error, it should be our default assumption that we should 
be correcting it. That should be our default assumption. Okay? Now, you have to use wisdom in deciding what... There are various levels of error, okay? Uh, And therefore, various various levels of importance of, of things being corrected. So let's, so let's think in this passage, what sort of indication do we have? We're, we're given sort of the, 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 you know, the most important, the biggest, baddest error that needs to be dealt with. We should probably be dealing with this one every time we see it, right? Correcting it. Contending earnestly for the faith is what, is what that would look like in Jude's language. What is it? Well, it has something to do with grace. Now, how popular is the word grace today? Hugely popular, right? Hugely popular. So we're not just talking about any little error. We're especially, specifically looking at error that uses grace to lead people into licentiousness. Now, track with me here. Does somebody have to say, well, we live under grace. Therefore, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It doesn't matter whether you live in sin for the rest of your life or not. Does somebody have to say that in order to be leading people into licentiousness? No. And actually, there are very few people who go out and say that. They are out there. But they're few and far between compared to people who are using grace to lead people into licentiousness. Today, when you hear the word grace, you should immediately be suspicious that what is being done is leading people into licentiousness. It's that common. And the reason it's that common is because the creepers haven't been publicly rebuked for their leading people into licentiousness. And so they've grown bolder. And they have become more popular. And they have so abused the word grace that today people, large portions of the church don't even have any idea what grace actually means. And so you hear things from people that demonstrate they don't have any idea what grace, what the word grace means. And most of the time, when you hear somebody say, well, I just want to live a grace-filled life, they don't know what they're saying. What they think that means and what it actually means are two opposite things. Grace-filled means accepting of all things and all people, no matter what, in today's lingo. 
Isn't that a good summary of what somebody who wants to live a grace, you know, a, a gracious and grace-filled life is talking about? It means they don't ever want to be in conflict. They don't ever want other people to be uncomfortable in their presence. Because they don't ever want to be uncomfortable. And as soon as other people are uncomfortable, they're so empathetic that they're uncomfortable. And how terrible that anybody would ever be uncomfortable. And so we end up being all so very, very comfortable today, i.e. grace-filled, and burning in hell tomorrow. This is grace leading to licentiousness that the warning of Sodom and Gomorrah is given to us for, to protect us against. So if, if, if somebody's conception of the word grace would leave them in the land of Sodom and Gomorrah with nothing to say, they are leading people into licentiousness. They do not have to say, well, I believe in grace, therefore anything goes. They do not have to say, well, <clears throat> I believe in grace, therefore there's no such thing as sin in anybody's life. <laughs> no, they don't have to talk that way. All they have to say is, well, I used to be so very uncomfortable with homosexuality, but now as I've, as I've grown in my understanding and, and as I've gotten to know some people who live with that difficult desire in their life, I've realized the importance of having grace for other people. Is there anything wrong with that statement? The importance of having grace for other people? No, having grace for other people is very important, isn't it? But what is being communicated What's really being communicated? Well, it depends on the person, right? (laughs) But you know, the gist of it, if that's all that's said, if that's all the more context that you have to go off of, you know what they're saying is, I don't condemn homosexuality as sin anymore. I used to think it was wrong. Now, I can't say that anymore. And the same thing holds true for countless other sins, right? I used to expect my children to obey me, but now I have grace for them. I used to desire that my Mother and my father would repent, but as I've grown older, my, I have grown in my, in my graciousness. I have grown in grace-filled understanding of the difficulties that have put them into the place that they are today. Uh, 
And so I don't have conversations where I call them to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved anymore. Because I'm grace-filled now. And you see, this, what, what's going on is these are people who have had the creepers get a hold of them. Each of these, I think each of the examples I just gave are people who have changed, you see? They've changed. Why have they changed? Well, they've changed because the pressure is there to change. And the teaching is there to change them. And their change in belief has led to a change in action, right? Unless we're committed to contending earnestly for the faith, the church in America will be given over to the creepers, the, the grace-sayers, who actually mean licentiousness. Not because God is incapable of protecting his church. Not saying that he won't maintain a remnant for himself. He will. He does protect his church and he will maintain it and establish it forever. But what is the church? The pillar and foundation of the truth. And so if the church in America continues to not care for what the truth is, the result is that the truth will be lost, continue to be lost. And so we will continue to see what I just read about yesterday, a ministry that I've personally benefited from and others of you in this room have, has begun to repent of the gospel. Turning aside... from biblical lessons, turning aside from the word of the Lord, which formerly was boldly proclaimed by this ministry, they're turning everything on its head. They're repenting of calling people to repent. They claim that their old Bible study materials were problematic because they looked at sin first rather than Jesus. They have become a newer, better, 2.0, grace-filled ministry. They're no longer concerned about putting off and putting on. Putting off the old, putting off the fleshly, putting on the spiritual. This is a biblical concept. And yet, 
they write about put off, put on as if it's a bad thing today. Out of nowhere. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, I bring it up because, listen, this is this has been for years a biblical ministry that proclaimed the gospel and is now suddenly completely flipping all of its material on its head, throwing it away, and starting over with grace-based licentiousness. We have to be on alert. You can't just assume that, oh, well, they used to be good and so they still are. No, you have to be alert. This is what contending earnestly means. You can't just get lazy. You have to think about what you're reading. I don't care how many books that are good Piper has written or whoever it is that you like to read, okay? I don't care how many sermons you've heard me preach. You have to be evaluating whether this conforms with the gospel of Jesus Christ or whether I am proclaiming grace-based licentiousness. And I really want you to get that phrase in your head. Grace-based licentiousness. Because it is such a helpful three-word definition for so much material that is out there today. And if you can just remember Jude. Jude is about warning me about this book and 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 this book. And there's something I'm supposed to do. What was it? Oh yeah, contend! I am going to contend against grace-based licentiousness. That's what I'm going to do. Wherever it pops up. Why? Well, because I care. I love my neighbor. I love my parents. I love the people around me in church. And I don't want them falling prey to the creepers. So let us pray that the Lord will strengthen his church today in America to turn away from this justification of immorality. There is never any justification for our immorality. There is only the justification of Jesus Christ through the forgiveness of our sins. That's the justification that the church needs. That's the justification that America needs. That's the justification that Cincinnati needs. Let's seek and pray for these things. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, your word is true and good, and it calls us to hard, hard work. Give us strength, we pray, to contend earnestly for the faith.
Give us discernment to see with clear eyes, grace-based licentiousness, wherever it shows up. May we discover in your word as we study how to fight for the faith. And Father, we pray that you would help us to do so with gentleness, in the spirit of gentleness, looking out so that we might not be tempted ourselves. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.